Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey, OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is the last week we'll be cross-listing the Biblical World podcast in the OnScript feed. Next week, we'll go back to regular programming, so please subscribe to Biblical World wherever you listen. We'll have episodes there just about every week, or you can go over to onscript.study forward slash biblical world. Special thanks to Ed Hackey for producing the show, Alan Files for all the web help and support and to Rebecca Terhune for marketing and media. Enjoy the podcast, and please share the word or give Biblical World a rating to help get this off the ground. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to On Script Biblical World podcast. I am Chris McKinney. I'm your host with a a, a co-host, Mary Buck. Uh, Both of us go back a bit to 2005 when both of us attended uh, Israel Bible Extension, or IBEX, uh, of the Master's University back in the day, where we spent a semester studying in Israel. Uh, Mary is an expert in, uh, in, in the city of Ugarit, as well as the uh, backgrounds in the northern Levant and what we call the northern parts of of Canaan, which is a very important part of the larger biblical world. Uh, We're very excited to have Mary on today. Uh, Mary, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Chris. Uh, Yeah, I'm really old now because you're saying 2005. It's been forever since then. So thanks for bringing that touchy subject up. No, um, no, I, uh, I would say first and foremost, I love the ancient world. It's just fascinating in every aspect of things. And I had the tremendous privilege to get to study, um, do my doctorate and to study what I wanted. And I focus primarily on um, what's called Northwest Semitic philology, which is really digging into kind of the linguistic um, origins of, you know, Northwest Semitic, the Northwest Semitic language family, which includes Ugaritic, Amorite, Canaanite, Phoenician, those kind of things, um, which, you know, a real page turner, as you can tell. No, um, but got to do a dig, got to several digs in the, in the uh, Near East. And um, yeah, I, got, I had the privilege of studying under Dr. Dennis Pardee, who is kind of the foremost Ugaritic scholar um, in the world. So just a really like an awesome opportunity. And so um, i happy to, to talk about Ugarit in the ancient world today. So, Yeah, and that's, and that's our topic. We're going to approach a topic that I am by no means an expert on, but Mary has spent a lot of time in her dissertation and her studies uh, about the site of Ugarit, uh, although some people pronounce it Ugarit. Uh, I, I think most, most of the Ugaritic scholars like the U sound at the, at, at the beginning from what I've, from what I've heard. Uh, and so it's just so fun to, after uh, quite a bit of time has passed, to be able to reconnect and talk about a part of this larger biblical world that we've both been really enthralled with for a long time. Uh, and I'm I'm particularly excited to to dive into this uh, to dive into the site of Ugarit. So maybe you could tell us about where it is in terms of the the region of the Levant. And when it is, because I think both of those are, are very important features for Ugarit. 
Oh, interesting. Um, so where and when? So um, it's on the coastline of modern-day Syria, so which makes it a little bit difficult. We haven't uh, had the chance to dig at the site for quite a while, unfortunately, right, obviously given modern politics. Um, but it is on the coastline of modern Syria, and it is in the, what's what's called the Northern Lamont, which... Um, you know, classically, you know, not getting too much into geography and topography, um, but classically kind of the Southern Levant will uh, end and the Northern Levant will begin sort of at the kind of the Becca Valley region up into the Phoenician coastline. And Ugart was really centrally located. I don't have a map for you, but hopefully you'll open a map, look for it and see where it's at. Um, it's really centrally located for a couple of reasons. One, it was a connection point between Mesopotamia and the Levant. So it's like that first starting point uh, for all overland trade that came through there. And they really had to pass by Ugarit because they had to kind of skirt the coastline. So it was very centrally located. The second thing is it had a natural, three actual uh, natural harbors. Um, so Rashamra, Minid Albida, et cetera. And so those were very, uh, well, Minid Albida is the, is, Beta is the main harbor there. And it's a pretty big harbor, which meant they really controlled sea traffic as well and sea trade. And uh, so very centrally located in those regions. And that's that's uh, one reason why, reason why Ugarit is kind of a middle ground <laughs> because they're interacting with the Hittites. They're interacting with Mesopotamia. They're interacting with, you know, to the north and then to the south. They're interacting with the Canaanites. They're interacting with Egypt. Uh, they're interacting with Cyprus or Alashia, as it was called in the, in the you know, the Bronze Age. So uh, really central site. So that's your where. Um, and your when is... It's actually had a really long uh, period of continue, almost continuous inhabitation. So uh, the site goes way back to kind of a fishing village into the Neolithic period. And then I won't go into too many details, but basically kind of had a series of habitations and then it came into its own in the Middle Bronze Age. So think about roughly 1800 BCE to 1200 BCE. So that six year, hundred year time period, it becomes one of the foremost kingdoms in the ancient Near East. So I think we kind of forget about it a little bit because uh, it was smaller and, and those kind of things. Um, and it was only discovered. We didn't know really anything about it until the early 1900s. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, it's a fascinating place. Um, I was trying to, uh, when I was preparing for lectures for my students, I was trying to give people a kind of an idea of how, how significant it is in terms of biblical history, ancient Near Eastern history, um, but also how relatively insignificant its size is. And actually, I think, at least if my math was right, is it's a little bit even smaller than Rhode Island uh, in terms of the city-state that was Ugarit, but it it is uh, so significant uh, in terms of a, uh, in terms of a, of a, of a site that speaks to uh, so many different aspects of Canaanite uh, Canaanite life, and uh, in fact, I remember when I was looking at this, I think that it said it was discovered by by accident in 1928 when they actually found the harbor at uh, Minat el uh, Beda, and then they eventually moved over and excavated uh, the site of Rashama, which was the the main city of Ugarit. Uh, and yes, you mentioned that, that, that you can't go to Syria now and excavate, but at the same time, they did excavate for quite a long time uh, between 1929 and I think the beginning of the 2000s. But you know, as archaeologists, we always want we always want more. Uh, there's always more to always more to discover. And so, from my perspective, a site like this, um, it's it's 
it'd be one thing if we they excavated for a long period of time and all they found were nice buildings with a few inscriptions. But the main real discovery at Ugarit, at least as far as I'm concerned, is the discovery of the, I think, hundreds and maybe even thousands of, of tablets that were uncovered. And to my knowledge, the, the really uh, important aspect of that is not just tablets. I mean, if you go to Mesopotamia, you can find uh, hundreds of thousands of tablets, and all of them will make your eyes bleed. With uh, <laughs> My how, eyes are, how... have been bleeding for the last <laughs> several years, yep. Because they're financial texts, and there's, yeah. they're important in and of themselves, yeah. but it's the literary aspect of this that have parallels, uh, presumably, uh, with, the biblical, uh, with the biblical text. So could you tell us a little bit about um, the kind of the background of these discoveries uh, and uh, thinking about especially the big ones, uh, the Baal cycle or the Baal cycle, if you like. And uh, I, I particularly find these to be very interesting. And when do those date to? Um, and then like, just to kind of give us, a, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more later about some of the more specifics, uh, but where are they found on the site? And, and why is that important? Oh, interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you go back to the, kind of the discovery, you shared a bit about it. So 1928, they had heard it, or heard from local uh, farmers that there were some objects on the hotel, and they kind of did a quick purview to you know, see what was going on, found some gold cylinders, things like that. And they said, okay, let's do it. They came back in May of 1929. And um, within five days of excavating, they had found their first texts. So it was so, which is Bizarre, right? Bizarre. But it makes sense because the site was destroyed in 1980, or in, not in 1985, but in um, 1185 BCE. And um, uh, my dog has decided to come right next to us. So sorry. Um, <laughs> he's but, welcome. Uh, he's, he or he's, she is welcome. He is welcome. His name's Yogi. He's going to make it to the podcast, clearly. Um, is, he, is it Ilu's dog? Uh, <laughs> it's Ili Milku's dog, yeah. Um, no, yeah, so the site was destroyed in 1185, and because of that, it wasn't resettled, so the finds were just up on the top, and that was that final period of a guard is when all of the... Or, most of the texts were written. So um, it was really significant find. The, the, the first text they found was at, they were actually axe heads, which is sort of interesting. And it had just a really kind of simple, you know, kind of a five-word inscription there in a script no one had ever seen before. And over the next two years, it was, it's a fascinating read, if you ever get a chance, of how they deciphered the language, because it was a new language, new terminology, new script. Like, how do you actually go about deciphering it? And they were able to kind of do some comparisons with other languages, do the decipherment. And really within two to three years, the whole language had been deciphered. There were a couple other um, finds that, you know, discoveries and things like that related to certain phonemes and whatever over the next kind of 10 years. Um, but really that kind of, it was translated very quickly and we began to get texts and, and have, have those brought into the academic circles, which is very cool. Um, I think I mentioned, uh, sort of you, you talked about some of the more, you know, the key texts. So there have been over 2,500 texts found, so it's not insignificant. And because they're in a local dialect, that's what's so significant because it's a, it was a language that was unknown prior to, you know, 1929. Um, and, and maybe I can say this. So Akkadian texts, they have over 600 signs. It's very complicated, right? But the site of Ugarit is actually in Northwest Semitic. So it's similar to Hebrew and Aramaic and, and languages like that. Um, and they developed their own script just for their kingdom. And they have their own terminology. They have their own kind of the way they, they construct the language. That's what makes it so incredible because it's 
unearthing a language that's never been found before. So all of the things that go into a language, how we think, right? You know, how we describe ourselves, naming conventions, all of that was new and unique to the site, which is incredible. And undoubtedly there are other kingdoms and populations that actually had their own languages like this. We just haven't found them. So that's what makes Ugarit so, so cool. And then you mentioned, right, in terms of the text. So the texts for Ugarit are very unique because we have just a whole host of different genres. So we have letters that went back and forth from some of the kings. And th those are my favorite texts, so I start there. But letters that go back and forth between kings of the region, and we understand a little bit about international relations in the Bronze Age. Um, we have, just as you said, large epics, right? So the Baal epic is one of them, or the Akkad cycle is one of them. These large, long, multi-tablet epics, right, uh, that give us a sense of their of their mythology and their pantheon and the structure of their of their religious system we have um religious texts is a, like sacrifices and which is kind of a good corollary to the biblical text right so sacrifices and and purification rituals we have texts about you know people and their drinking community communities which in in, in ugaritic is called the marzichu and they would meet together and they would you know drink together and we have a text so funny we have a text about how to i not a drinker myself, but we have a text about how to cure a hangover. And literally it's called, uh, you, you cure a hangover with the hair of a dog, which I find to be hilarious, right? So to me, what I always like about it, ancient world feels so ancient, but the texts give us a window into the life of, they're just humans. They, they're just like you and me. We have one letter, I always say this, that Queen Mother writes to her son. Her son has journeyed up to Hati, and he's up there. He's meeting with the Hittite king, and she writes to him, and the letter, the letter that she writes is like, I hope you're getting enough sleep. Literally, it says, I hope you're getting enough sleep. It's hilarious, like with all of these formal conventions, but um, it just is a window into communities and families and how they thought about religion and life and farming and, and all of that. So those are the texts. But I, I can speak to any of those genres that you might find interesting. Or, or correlations to the Bible or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really interesting. I I'd, I'd heard of that one before, and I think that people say that that's the earliest hair of the dog uh, reference, which is which is fun. What one of my favorite ones is from Akat, um, the Epic of Akat, and where we have uh, where we have the the main character uh, Daniel or Danelu, who is who is listing all these reasons why he should have. A son, and he's arguing with the gods, hoping that they would would uh, give him a son. And he lists things like that they'll raise Estella together, and uh, he'll help him when he's drunk, make it back home. Uh, and then my favorite one is hopefully he will patch my roof when it leaks. Uh, it's like these, it's like almost this laundry. <laughs> when I list get old, of, my kid needs to take care of me. That's right, man. That's right. <laughs> it's like mow the lawn. Yeah. Uh, it's just this very familiar aspect to it. And I think you're right that. The more we kind of unpack these ancient stories, um, even though there's there there are, are of course obstacles like okay this just looks like barbed wire on a pay on a, on a on a tablet and I don't know what it says uh, even if you knew Akkadian that type of thing once you figure that out you have to figure out okay what is the convention of of the way they would write things what's how is the the, the meter or the poetry work how does that fit in with the the divine. But then you're right, like when you get to those moments of like, I can totally identify with what that person is saying because I felt the same the same way. Uh, and so what's so interesting is you can you can study Ugaritic material, any of these stories on their own terms. 
But you can also, what's so interesting for, for this podcast is so much of that can connect with the, the biblical text. Um, I, I'm interested in, in your opinion, if you have one. So uh, many on opinions. The, so many opinions. <laughs> always good to have opinions. So, uh, f- and I, I'm a novice when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, uh, but from what I understand, there are two main temples at Rosh Hashanah, at Ugarit, and one is unquestionably identified with, uh, with Baal, and the other uh, is uh, either identified with uh, Hadad, uh, excuse me, uh, Dagon, the father of uh, the father of Baal, or El, uh, who is the other uh, the other major power in the the, the texts. And before you answer and decide which one you uh, think, uh, or maybe you don't have uh, uh, you've fallen on an opinion yet, uh, what's so interesting about these, from, from what I understand, is that most of the literary texts, uh, the Baal cycle, Akkad, um, and, and others were found between these two temples in the house of the of the priest, which is showing like this scribal activity associated with religion, associated with worship, much in the way we would actually think about the biblical text being written in Jerusalem, where you have a lot of scribal activity happening in the house of in the house of Yahweh and next to it. Uh, and we could point to several different uh, parallels in Isaiah and so on, Jeremiah, where we have this type of thing going on. So but without going too far afield, uh, what is your, uh, what is, do you have an opinion on that? And maybe, because um, I, I think that's a real crit- critical issue. Because Dagon, who is this guy? I'm like particularly interested in the temples because it sort of was key to my, um, in my book, like talked a lot about it because I think it's really important for understanding population movement and, and that kind of thing. So there are two, there are two temples there and one is dedicated, as you said, almost exclusively to Baal or Balu, whatever you want to say. Um, and so, and Baal was the, the storm deity, right? So he's shown, shown with a, a lightning bolt and there's a very famous, uh, steely from, from the site. It was actually down the side of, of of the tell, um, of him with a, you know, kind of a lightning bolt ball with a lightning bolt. That's the one in the Louvre, right? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the big, yeah. right. Really large one. It was found really early, et cetera. So that's that one. And, and, um, and he had a major presence at Ugarit just in the text that we know of. Right. So he is regularly seen in, in a lot of the, um, religious texts and you have, um, a number of instantiations of him. So there's like versions of all, if that makes sense. So lots of Baal worship there. Um, and then, the second temple is just, as you said, it's unclear. We don't have, and, and of course there's not like a, yeah, then this would make sense, right? It's not like you go to the temple and it's like temple to Dagon, right? Like though, um, there it's unclear. Um, there are two, uh, dedicatory inscriptions that are found next to the temple, just like on the side, um, to Dagon. And there is some sense that, that potentially these, you know, because they're there, they were worshiping Dagon, but who knows? There's a lot of, deba- I mean, basically the debate is it could be Dagon because of these inscriptions, or it could be Elu or El, right? But Elu in, in, in Ugaritic, um, it, because Elu was a, the, you know, the head of the pantheon, he was very significant, equally significant or more significant than Baal in the pantheon. And so it seems a little bit weird if he wasn't worshiped there. It could have been any host of things. It could have been, there was one to Baal and then there was one to all the other deities, right? There could have, could have been, Hey, different months of the year, or different, you know, ceremonies or right. <clears throat> you know, I think it's, it's hard to put a, from a human experience, it's hard to put a, I am labeling this one way, right? So I, I just think we'll never necessarily know uh, from, from the things we've found. 
The temples themselves, what's really interesting, they fall into the, the Migdal style temple. So just from an archeological perspective, um, they're very tall. And they serve two, or they, they serve a very important purpose. So one, absolutely, they're a place of worship, and there was kind of an inner sanctum, and, and there would have been processions there, and there would have been sacrifices, and so the whole kind of religious cult around it. But cool, their cooler aspect of this is they're really tall, and they're and they're thick, man. They are formidable. And, and this construction, so one aspect of this is you could actually, they had a rooftop, and you could go up to the top, and this would have given you um, the ability to see all the trade on land and in sea, which is really cool, right? So they served as this lookout tower. That's why the Migdal Tower, um, you know, terminology. And what, at least my thesis, is that um, these are connected with the Amorite populations of, the, of um, Mesopotamia. And so we think about the big site of Mari and this, the temple, the temple tower or uh, a Migdal style temple. And it's actually a, a construction or an archeological construction that's moved sort of from the Mesopotamian heartland from Mari and is transplanted at sites where I believe Amorites went to. And so I think, I believe that, you know, the Amorites founded Ugard in 1800 they immediately uh, start construction on these temples. And these temples remain in use for 600 years without ceasing. So they were, and they, their walls are like five meters thick. They're huge, right? And so these remain in use for 600 years. And you see this same, this same style in the Southern Levant as well. So sites like Shechem and um, others will actually have this Absor, same thing. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. And, and there's Pella in the, in the, the Transjordan. And so there's other places. That's an places. amazing temple. That, that one in Pella, is a, it's an amazing temple yeah go ahead sorry i didn't interrupt no but I, I, I saw it from I, the only, road i didn't really like i wish i had spent more time there because you're saying that and i'm like you know i've seen pictures but i saw i just you know i saw the site of pella from the road and i didn't get a chance to explore so tell me about yeah, it I, actually why is it amazing I, I have not been i've been to the site but it was years before i even knew about the uh the temple but just looking at the uh, looking at the the publications and photos of it, it's just uh, very well built, and the the finds are very important. We did a lot of study from uh, our end on the Tel Borna archaeological project, uh, looking at some of the um, iconography that was there in terms of Tree of Life, and it's the same time period that it was 14th, 13th century. Uh, they've, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think they claim that that is that that temple is dedicated to El. Um, which would be, uh, for those of you who aren't making this connection, El in, in, in Hebrew means God, um, which is a, a name that can be referring to the God of Israel. We also have the name most especially in the word Elohim, which is kind of the generic way of referring to, uh, to Yahweh, uh, to, to the Lord, um, but can also be a term for, for angels. And so this, this deity, El, was the chief creator deity in the Levant, um, particularly from what we see at Ugarit, but also most likely in the Southern Levant uh, as well. But as, as Mary mentioned, it's the part of the difficulty is in identifying temples and where you have uh, the worship of a particular deity. It's not like you have in classical periods where you have very clear signs of iconography or writing directly on site. Now, in the case of, of, of Ugarit, you did with, with Baal, uh, but we, maybe we shouldn't be too greedy and hope to identify uh, both of these places. And so I, I'm familiar with this to some extent because these are the types of things we're trying to do. Now, our 
temple is really a little T. I mean, we don't even like to use the word temple. It's a more of a, a kind of a shrine in a courtyard. In, a, in and of itself, it's it's really interesting. But these are all kind of the questions that everyone's trying to uh, to get at. Who who is being worshipped? Why are they being worshipped? Um, and so some of the things you mentioned there are, are really, really interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is thinking about how these temples would have functioned for ancient peoples and just the space. I mean, you mentioned how big it was, how long it was in use, the size of it, the the height of it. And I think there's even a, a model of the temple of Baal uh, that, that at least I've seen a picture of, and, and also the proximity of of these, and I actually like to use the word houses of, uh, to convey that idea, houses of, of, of Baal or houses of Yahweh, which is the biblical term for uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, but the proximity of the temple of Baal and this other temple to the main mountain, I mean, they were they, they could look directly across and look at Mount Siphon, uh, where supposedly Baal is uh, enthroned in his real palace. Uh, and that's actually one of the big parts of the story of the, the Baal cycle. And here, I, I think there's just a number of really interesting parallels that can be made between what we have in terms of uh, the biblical text and the way it presents Yahweh and uh, oftentimes uh, the people that he, that he, uh, he, he raises up to, to serve and what we read in, in Ugarit. So uh, could you comment a little bit about uh, uh, thinking about, especially because the thing that was really interesting to me is it does seem likely that you would, ex- if you just read the text, that it would be L. Uh, but but the fact that Dagon's name is in there uh, on the on the temple is uh, is is intriguing. So could you talk a little bit about what what are some things that we would actually read about? in the story of the Baal cycle specifically that might have parallels with what we read in the biblical text. Yeah, sure. And I, I feel like, I also feel like I've shortchanged you because I um, I didn't talk about scribal culture near the temples. <laughs> well, let's, do, let's do that. I feel let's like, do wow, there's actually a lot of parallels, so I don't know. Um, but I, I just more if you think about so there's a couple different aspects of interaction with the temples, right? There is the aspect of kind of the religious staff, let's say. Okay, so there's a there's a group of um, of religious priests, right, that are living nearby, scribes that are that are that are serving the temples, and this is their function. And they they are um, elites within the city. They're very important. Um, and they are literate. They're able to you know they're they're able to write, right? They're scribes, and so we think about and of course they're doing that scribal culture like nearby the temples. And so that's a big part of, and a lot of the texts that they're writing are religious texts. Um, the myths and the epics, of course, would have been, would have been considered sort of religious texts as well. Um, so they're a really important part of that structure, right? Um, I mean, think about it this way. They employed an entire staff to sort of facilitate the human and divine connection and then to transcribe it on tablets for posterity, right? So they can be read by others, they could be read aloud, right? Why write the Baal epic, right? They, they surely were um, having, you know, oral traditions around, you know, fire as a community and things like that. So why transcribe it, right? So it's a very important aspect of scribalism in that and, and recording the religious text, recording things to that. Um, so that's, that's the aspect of kind of just thinking about scribalism. Um, so your second question is sort of about like, can you ask the question again? Make sure I'm... Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. About, so I was thinking of, you know, 
in reading uh, context of scripture or something, some kind of standard resource like this, I mean, you, you, which is by Pardee, you know, your, uh, your Dr. Walter, um, the, you have, you see just the, the amazing connections that can be potentially made between these religious texts and, um, and, and the biblical worldview, uh, thinking about um, even the ideas such as like the divine council, a chief deity, uh, the idea of um, this this figure that is empowered uh, to take on enemies. In this case, it would be Baal being given um, particular weapons to fight against Yom, the, the sea god. And so uh, could you just comment on some of those wider ideas and if you have some favorite ones, uh, and I'll maybe say a couple things also. No, please do. I mean, please do. I, 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 so I would say I, I am at, at the heart of what I do and the way I think is history. And so I tend to not start with literature or literary connections. Because um, I think when Ugaritic was discovered and the texts were published, right away people were like, oh my goodness, it sounds so much like the Bible. They were drawing a lot of connections. But I, I tend to caution against that. So the reason for that is I believe they're in two very different um, kind of sort of histories, right? They're actually very different lineages. And so if you think about the site of Ugarit, it was founded in um, I mean, to kind of simplify the story, right? It's founded in 1800 by Amorites. They've moved in from Mari. They've established it really at the height of Mari, right? When and, and we can talk about Mari in a different episode, but Mari was a massive kingdom in the Northern Levant. And they they found Ugarit as sort of their coastal town. It's a it's an Amorite a dynasty. They build their temples. They establish their culture. And they, they're there for 600 years. So they're bringing with them a, a host of sort of cultural things from their from the milieu that they've come from. And this includes, and you you, asked, you mentioned before, Dagon, very important deity in Mesopotamia, really not important at all in the Levant. Um, I mean, you have a couple mentions, but it's it's he's not very, very significant. They they bring with them uh, the the you know the use of donkey sacrifice. They bring with them they just different aspects, the use of the temple tower, the Migdal Tower we just talked about. Um, so they bring in all of these cultural differences with them as they migrate over there. In the south or in the southern Lamont, you have a very different structure. The Canaanite population um, had already been in the region um, likely since, you know, the third millennium. They had established this. And so they have their own cultural milieu as well, the Canaanites to the south. And so I really like to keep them. I know they're pretty, they're close proximity. They're interacting. We see interaction. We know that they're interacting with one another. But they saw themselves as quite distinct. So we have a number of texts where the Ugaritics are like, look, we are not, you know, <laughs> those Canaanite people, they came up here, we're going to imprison them, right? We hear about this because they consider themselves separate. And so I think it's, it's it does a, us a little bit of a disservice to try to lump them into the same thing because they obviously didn't see themselves as the same. They saw themselves as very, very distinct. Um, so you have, obviously, the biblical text, you see sacrifices, but sacrifices were really common everywhere, right? I mean, they're common uh, across the Mediterranean, across the ancient Near East. So you get something like um, the Marseille tariff. We'll take, it's a Phoenician text that's found much later, right? And in Marseille, in France, and they have a whole sacrifice system. That You could compare it to the Bible, and, and surely there are correlations. However, it's a different culture, it's a different language, it's a different region, it's a whole different, right? So you can draw correlations, but at the same time, you have to really be kind of protect, you know, to say, mm, okay, maybe they were distinct and not the same. So when we think about 
what we can learn about the Bible from Ugarit. There's a few, you know, like, maybe that's the, the question. Like, how do we read the Bible in light of a find like this? Is it just sort of irrelevant? It was just this population up there. It didn't really matter, right? Um, I think there's a number of connections. One is, of course, um, in the Middle Bronze Age, right, we think about the patriarchs. And so as the Amorites in 1800, they're settling Ugarit, they're moving south into the southern Levant, they're establishing sites like Shechem and Pella that we talked about. Um, they're establishing these sites. Well, that's the same point in time period when the, the patriarchs are moving south into Egypt. And so you think, oh yeah, the Amorites came down, they swung into the region, Israel was gone by this point, so there would have been that vacuum. Um, so that's a really good connection. Another great connection is you think about um, kind of the heyday of Ugarit is really between about 1450 to 1200. BCE. So that 250 year time period, that's the time when they're producing texts, they're a kingdom, there's international relations, all those things. And during that time period, we think that's kind of like um, this, the, you know, the late Bronze Age in the Southern Levant. And we think about what's going on in the late Bronze Age in, in the Bible. So we think about, man, okay, the period of the judges, there's not a lot of centralization. Um, they are kind of smaller settlements. They haven't taken control yet. And so then from Ugarit, there's a number of texts we have about their interactions with the Southern Levant, their interactions with Egypt. And so this really tells us you know, the, the Bible gives us a really myopic view or a very limited view on what's going on in Israel at that time in the late Bronze Age. But Ugarit blows that up to say, oh yeah, I see how that fits into this period where there's all these different kingdoms, there's power relations, there's that kind of thing. So that's why it's really significant. And surely, surely there were religious parallels, but I think the Israel Israelite sacrificial system came up out of a very different history. They wouldn't have been connected to the Amorite Amorite uh, traditions. Very interesting. But uh, please really add to that because I think you said you had no, no, you had no, more to add to yeah. that. So I'm curious. No. So I, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, is I think that um, one of the real issues and one of the things that we hope we can do um, well on this podcast is inform uh, listeners of kind of the variety of of cultures that contribute to our understanding of the biblical world. Um, and I think there's always kind of a danger when we focus and hone in on a particular culture and we say that this has to be the lens through which we read uh, scripture. Uh, and I could give you kind of an example. Like one of the things that uh, clearly has parallels between what we read in, let's say, Genesis 1 through 11 um, is, is the Mesopotamian material where we can talk about the the flood narratives, some of the creation mythology that we have coming out of Babylon, and, and of course the earlier stuff from uh, from Su from Sumer, uh, that there, there there are clear parallels uh, between these, particularly with the with the flood narrative, uh, and yet at the same time, if you if you read uh, from around the same time period in the Egyptian material, uh, you can see parallels with with Genesis one. Uh, such as Atum floating on the sea and self-creating himself. That kind of reminds us of what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis with the spirit hovering over the water. Now, that's not to say that they're direct parallels, but it shows you that there's kind of a variety of connections that can be made. But the problem is, is that it's not a one-size-fits-all for each one of these different cultures. And, and from what I've found is um, Ugarit tends to be the 
closest in terms of chronology, even though it's late Bronze Age and most of what we have in the Bible is written in the, in the Iron Age, it's still closest in terms of chronology and it's closest in terms of region, despite its great distance from the northernmost part. And I would actually like to say something about what Ugarit tells us about potential finds. Uh, I think the discoveries at Ugarit, and you could also make the case for, for Mari and other places, tells us why a site like Hatsor and its potential archive, which undoubtedly existed, it hasn't been found yet, um, is so significant. Because what it would be, uh, Hatsor is in the northern part of the, um, of the kingdom of Israel, northern part of, of, of uh, modern Israel today. If we were to find um, an archive there that had literary texts like what were found at Ugarit, uh, such as the Baal cycle, Hatzor version, um, it's going to provide an, just an enormous amount of data that we can compare to what you have in Ugarit and other places, but it's much closer in, in terms of uh, the location with, within Israel itself. And so that's the kind of thing. And I was looking at a map uh, recently uh, in an atlas, and there was just a, a picture of uh, great inscriptions or most famous inscriptions from all of the ancient Near East, and it was kind of an Eastern Mediterranean map. And the funny thing was, is once you get below Byblos, south of Byblos to Egypt, it's like, there's this big gap. And it's crazy. The place that you have the most excavations, um, which is Israel, and to a lesser extent, Jordan, um, in the Middle, and, they, and of course, they have Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age sites, to not have but something like a hundred texts for all of this, is, is really is really odd. Um, and so until now, there hasn't been this, this strike pay dirt on finding one of these, but it, it kind of underscores if we could have Ugarit in Hatsor or Ashkelon or Shechem or one of these places, it would um, greatly allow us to expand our understanding and make these, even, these connections even further with uh, the biblical material. So I, I said I would say one of my you know, kind of favorite connections that you see, and there's a lot of them that can be made in, uh, let's, let's just limit it to the, to the ball cycle. Um, one of my favorite ones is the, the idea of the cloud rider, that Baal is referred to as he who rides on, uh, rides on the clouds. And it's mentioned that throughout, it's, it's his, um, just a kind of a title that's attributed to him by various other deities in, in the myth. And what we see all throughout the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is that Yahweh is one who rides on the clouds. We could point to uh, Psalm 18. We could point to even the idea of the, the pillar of cloud. Um, and so there's this idea that the one who is in the heavens is the one who rides on the clouds. He is the one who uh, is in control of this. And this, what's so interesting about this also is that context also carries over into latter parts of, of the Bible. So for instance, in in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the, the Ancient of Days who takes his seat, which is, of course, a reference to, to Yahweh, and appearing before him is the, the one who is like a son of man. And it, has, it makes direct reference to the clouds. And then we skip forward to the New Testament, and we have all of these references in the Gospels where we have big events, such as in, uh, and I'll just use Mark, for example, Mark 1, where we have... Uh, Jesus going down to John, and he baptized, and then the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the heavens are opened. Skip forward a little bit, we go to the Transfiguration, 
and there's the cloud appearing with, with God and says, this is my beloved son. And if, as we continue down and we get to really the peak of the, of the Gospels, we read uh, when Jesus is on trial and Annas comes um, before him and says, okay, are you the son of God? And he says, I am, and you will see the son of man descending with the clouds, uh, which is exactly what he also just uh, indicated with what would happen at the end uh, in, the, in, in the coming of the son of man with the clouds. And so there's this connection, this idea that the warrior, that the, that the, the, the main God, the, the, the one who is involved in um, the, 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 the main storyline of what's happening on earth, this hero, is, is exalted through this concept of the one who is riding on the clouds, coming with the clouds. And to, to really kind of finish that off, we see that same thing in, when Jesus ascends, because we have it said that as he's going up, and this is in Acts 1, uh, as he's ascending, a cloud covers his view. Um, and so it's just this really powerful connection. And you realize that all of this goes back, of course, to what you read about in the Old Testament, such as in Daniel 7, and of course, in the book of Exodus with the pillar of cloud. But the fact that that itself, that idea of someone who is the head of the pantheon, um, and of course, in biblical belief, there is no pantheon, at least in that, in that sense. It shows you that there's this shared idea that, at least from my perspective, I would like the idea of, of Lewis, you know, C.S. Lewis, the, you know, the myth become fact that is all kind of telling us that behind the scenes, there's this deeper idea of, of, of something true. Um, and so that's one. And then a second related one of those is uh, really my favorite um, is when Baal um, is told that he is going to be, you know, the king and he wants to have uh, to fight against Yom he has his weapons made for him, and they have specific names. Uh, now, on the one hand, this is really interesting to me because this, uh, you can see the connections even with like Thor and Mjolnir, you know, in, this, in his, big, his big hammer, but you could also connect it with uh, all the things we see in literature with Excalibur and Tolkien talking about Narsil with, with Aragorn and that type of thing. But it actually also connects with the Hebrew Bible uh, because, at least in my opinion, we can think of Psalm 2. And we have uh, the son of the son, the anointed one, who is who is consecrated with the task of destroying the the, the nations, and he is giving given a scepter or a rod of iron, and he dashes them to pieces. And so the idea of even kingship, the idea of someone who is exalted to this particular role, uh, we see as a shared idea. Now that doesn't mean that the, of course that the the writers of um, the writers of Psalms are saying, you know, that, that the Messiah is like Baal, but they're, they're sharing the idea at the basic level of, okay, what does the person, the hero, the, the exalted one, what will they do? And they, they get excited about the same things. And I'll maybe end here. Um, I, I think that there's a similar thing that we all experience when we watch even uh, modern films. Like, why is it that we feel that Goose, uh, those goosebumps when we watch uh, Gandalf descend the hill uh, in two towers, you know, why, that wait for me on the fifth day or the return of the king, when you have this faced off battle, when the king comes into his uh, power, when he's, when he's consecrated, when he's taken up the weapon, when he's going to face the final task, um, it, it, that, 
billions and billions of dollars have been spent in cinema to express precisely what we see uh, people in Ugarit and people in the Bible and uh, Old Testament and New Testament considered to be that one moment where everything is kind of put on display in terms of this glorification of, 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 of a figure. And so uh, to me, uh, those types of big picture ideas are, are really interesting. And when you read it in Ugarit and you read it in the Bible, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's interesting. You took us on a journey across regions, genres, all the way to modern film. I like, I like that. I like that. We hit, we hit King Arthur's court. This is awesome. No, I, it's an interesting one. I mean, I would say I tend to one, I mean, I feel like context is needed here. The Baal cycle is, is like a six tablet, uh, long literary text, which is kind of have sweeping narratives and, and would have been told around the fire of, you know, these people. Um, I, and it's one of the most significant texts that comes out of a guard. I have to say it's one of my least favorite texts. Cause I think why one reason for this is, um, when people think of guard, they think they, they, we go to the Baal cycle, we think about, but we have all these texts about what was going on in the ground. Right. And I actually care. Sometimes I, I care more about, all right, all the time. I, I'm more interested in like the mom telling her son, yeah, get some sleep. Right. As opposed to these kind of sweeping epics, but of course they would have been very significant as well. So, um, but to the, to that point on, on the ball cycle, I think as you're drawing these connections, I think the connections are more of human ones rather than a shared identity. Right. Uh, so if you think about the cloud writer, absolutely. But I think that there's a general in the human consciousness, right? The, the heavens and truly the clouds are the, the window slash portal to the divine. And this is a human concept. And so I, I consider, I mean, the, the time period separating between Ugarit and Daniel 7 is a really long time period, right? It's over a thousand, like not a thousand years, but it's like 800 years, right? It's a long time. I don't think that they're sharing a same idea. They're written in different locations. What they're sharing is the human window to the divine, which is you can do it in a temple or you can do it in nature and have that connection through the divine. And so I think that's where it's one of those things of like, is that just a human thing or is it a you had this same connection. It comes from the same, you know, so I think much is made of the cloud writer, but my, I, my general sense on that is Baal was the storm deity. He, of course he was interested in clouds because they cared about clouds because they were doing dry farming. They weren't doing irrigation. They were waiting for the rain. So you think about the population on the ground, they weren't going to eat if the rain didn't come. So they were going to do everything they could to appease Baal and hope that he had the, he was riding the clouds and extending his sort of, grace and, you know, <laughs> to the people, right? That, that's what they were hoping for because otherwise they're going to die of famine. So it, it's an interesting one. Like when you take those literary parallels, is it really a parallel or is it a human concept of the divine, which gets shared across genres and regions and things like that, right? So I tend to be on, on the side of it's a human concept that gets shared as opposed to the writers of the Bible and the writers of the text of Ugarit are sharing, a, you know, the same ancient Near Eastern concept. I mean, and, and if we put ourselves in their mindset as well, think about we know what clouds are today, right? We can go in the clouds. We've flown in the clouds. We've experienced them. But think about in the ancient world, they didn't know what made it up. They didn't, they didn't understand water vapor. They didn't understand. So what they saw this as is the evidence of the divine provision for humanity. And so this is what they're, that's their connection and that it becomes this very significant portal. So I say that only to say it's a very important literary concept because it's a very important human concept across, across the board. But 
Um, sorry to digress into that into that whole thing, but maybe this is this is tipping my hand to the fact that I think the Bible and Ugarit are really different. <laughs> um, um, and sure, we can draw parallels, but I think we should be careful when we do that. Um, and and I, I go back to there's a text in um, in the Amarna letters actually, like quick context, Amarna letters written about 1300, 1350, and they're a series of letters that go back and forth between the great kings of the late, late Bronze Age. Um, and there's some letters in there about about Ugarit and from Ugarit and about the Canaanites. And one of the letters, um, there were Canaanites traders and they come up there and the Ugaritics or the Ugaritians, they imprison them. And the, and then the Pharaoh in Egypt has to get involved because Ugarit was like, look, we're not, we're not trading with you. We don't think you should come through our territory. So they weren't like super fond of the Canaanites in Southern Levan. There were definite tensions. They were battling each other. Right. So there's, there is that kind of, um, kind of separate, a side note, it was interesting. I, I, I like what you were saying about you go to Southern Levant, there's just no finds, especially in the late Bronze Age. But you, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Like, are we going to find something someday? Will there be this like window into, man, we have this whole text hoard from Hatzor. Um, It's an interesting question. I think that um, in maybe, maybe not, because the late Bronze Age, the Canaanites weren't really a powerful nation. They were fighting each other. They're barely making ends meet. They're raiding one another, which is different than Ugara, which was pretty peaceful. They had a lot of wealth because of their trade and how they controlled trade and things like that. And so whether, you know, they were able to pay people essentially to just be scribes. And so we don't see the same as something like that, whether we find something like that, right? You know, I don't know, but it, we could, right? I mean, if, if Shechem, if they dig further there, Maybe there's an Amorite's, you know, store of texts there. We don't know, right? There, it could be, it would be transformative if we were able to get to those. I mean, archaeology is important, Chris, but I'm so sorry. Texts are so much more important. So, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. No. Well, I was going to tell you, if, if you're more concerned with the daily life of people, archaeology <laughs> is where it's at, because we find their trash, uh, we find their, their trash, <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, their, 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 their waste, their their whole thing. So yeah, they're, you know, they're you, chicken the daily bones. life. That's right. That's right. I, I'm with you though. Uh, texts are where it's at. People ask all the time. They say, "What's the greatest thing you found?" And uh, you know, the, the the main thing we want to find is texts. Texts provide, even if it's just a kind of a boring financial one, they provide this this landscape, this backdrop to uh, to the context that you're, you're you're finding. Of course, you can take a lot of information just from um, non literary finds, but Literary finds is really where the the treasure is, the gold. Um, That's what of, makes Ugarit uh, so cool. That's why, because we've got so many. I feel like we should just like sit down. Okay, that would be so boring. No one would listen to that. But if you went through it, you just took a look at the letters, you took a look at the literary text, you took a look at the financial documents. You, you know, all of the, just to kind of get a sense of what we do find out about ancient ancient world. That's that. That's what I think is cool about them for sure. So. Yeah. Maybe I can say, since we're kind of wrapping up and we're like, this is the longest podcast, no one's going to listen to this, but no, um, I'll, t I'll, I'll end with the end of Ugarit because I think that's very appropriate. So it gets founded in 1800 with it, this Amorite dynasty and it's, it's inhabited for 600 years. They've got their religious systems. They've got their scribal culture. They're building the Baal epic. They're all these things. And it abruptly ends in 1185. So we can actually date it almost very specifically for a couple of reasons. One, we have a letter that basically 
narrates the end of Agarit, which is just crazy, right? It's it's similar to it's similar to the Lakish letters being like, we see the signifiers, they've ended, right? Um, but it's saying they're coming, the sea peoples are here, they're attacking the site, the village, you know, the the city's burnt, right? And so it ends. It really ends in 1185. And um and it's this crisp date that happens. And the people that actually conquered it were the Sea Peoples, which I'm sure there's going to be another session on just that. But the Sea Peoples were a conglomeration of nine tribes that were coming out of Mycenae, that were coming out of Greece, that were coming out of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they were sweeping the coastline, and they really caused the end of the Late Bronze Age. So they they destroy, they force Hatti to end, and the Hittites, you know, fan out into the northern Levant. Ugarit ends. We have nothing else left from Ugarit. They they really, uh, you know, they, they tack the the new kingdom you know uh, in in Egypt all of those things and, they, and of course we have the Philistines right those are the most famous sea peoples for us because they were the sea peoples that settled in the southern Levant and we hear about them in the biblical narrative but so 1185 Ugar gets burnt this is why we have the text because the the tablets were burnt and preserved and that's why they were found in only five days because all of the texts and the sites and the temples and all of that were right up on the top of the surface and so um, and we they were literally lost to history from 1185 until 1929, which is so weird, right? Like you think about our lives, like blip, but these people that their mom cared about their son and they, they were fighting and they were nervous about their taxes and they were worried about getting rain. They were forgotten for 3000 years, which is just gnarly, right? They were completely forgotten. No one knew anything about them. And all of a sudden we had this window into, oh no, this entire kingdom lived and cared about things and were worried about their kids and all of that. We're able to kind of have an insight into this ancient kingdom, which is just so cool. It's amazing. It's totally cool. And regardless of different views on how you apply it to the body, like that's, uh, we've had this conversation before on the podcast where, you know, if you don't have like that sense of, I'm getting to see this for the first time, I'm getting to recover an ancient perspective, either through a skeleton or a pot or a house that was destroyed, or in this case, lots and lots of texts, you don't really capture what it is to be an archaeologist or what it is to be a historian, because it's, it's, we're interested, yes, because it connects to the Bible in some way, but we're also just interested in and of itself. We want to know who was this person, what was their background, what were their thoughts, and that's what, again, whether we're, we're excavating or talking about historical background in uh, the Northern Levant or reading texts uh, in the Northern Levant or anywhere, it's it's just always so interesting to put yourselves into another civilization. And in this case, like you mentioned, a place that has was essentially lost for uh, for the better part of of, of uh, three thousand years. Um, so let me ask you this in conclusion. One last question: What is the biggest debate in Ugaritic studies? What is, if, if you were to think is like the most hotly contested topic, um, if, if, you, if you have a, uh, an answer there, what's, what's, what's the thing that really riles up Ugaritic scholars? Because we all know in these academic world, that, you know, everyone's discussing and having these debates that no one else knows about because they're in they're their own debate irrelevant. somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. no one so, cares, yeah. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Um, that's a, such a good question. Oh my goodness. I honestly, I couldn't, 
I couldn't tell you. That's an interesting one. I, I think it depends on what you study. So if you study, oh my goodness, I, it's, it's, it's like if you are a literary scholar, you have something you care about. If you care about philology, which, you know, there's four of us in the world, um, you care about, you care about uh, the verbal system. So there's a lot of hotly debated on the verbals, but that's, you know, like that's really the, like four people that care about the verbal system. Um, if you care about history, um, I think what I was writing on was probably more, it was pretty hotly debated. I mean, in the sense of there were kind of two camps. One was Ugarit and, and Canaan, they're like the same thing. They're very similar. Their languages are some, like there's someone who wants, there's, there's a camp that wants to connect those. And there's a camp that says, no, 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 which is you're hearing in my, in my um, narrative, right? So, uh, and then there's a camp that says, no, Garrett's tied to, to Amorite. And so the connection there in terms of the literary connection, the linguistic connection, the um, cultural connection. And so wanting to divide and say, no, this is actually a very distinct culture. And so I think that's probably, I'm, I'm, I only published right in 2019. So I'm, I'm hitting at the point of where debate is striking. And so I think that that's, um, that's probably one of the more, I, I, one of the more hotly debated topics at the moment. I'm trying to think, so I mean, can the, you think of any? That's, I think, no, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, just in my cursory reading of the material, it does seem like ethnicity is a is a major kind of connection whether you're talking about them identifying with Amorite or Canaanite or just simply as the the, the city of Ugarit which this particular topic um, or let's think of it as a larger question you could ask about a lot of different peoples is something that is dominating and has dominated the um, the discussion in the Southern Levant, thinking about the Iron Age. What is an Israelite versus a Canaanite? What is an Israelite versus a Philistine? Do pots equal people? Um, and so all of those things are very relevant. And that kind of uh, goes also to your point. If we were able to excavate uh, Rashamra right now and skeletons were found, uh, you could do all kinds of DNA studies, which have been done for the Iron which Age. Which is so cool in, in the Southern Levant. It would be awesome yep. to do it, to do it for Ugarit and Mari and get a sense of this. Yeah. No, for sure. Right. And so it just, it just shows you that the, 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 the possibilities that are still out there with excavation in a place like Ugarit, which is in Syria, which hasn't been touched in 10 years because of the ongoing civil war. It just shows you how difficult it is for some of these places um, but in any case, I, I, I could talk about Ugarit all day. It's fun. It's, it's fun to... Yeah, you and me uh, and no one else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's fun to, to reconnect and get your perspective on this. And uh, hopefully down the line, we'll continue to develop uh, episodes related to the Northern Levant, um, uh, religion in Canaan, ethnicity, uh, history of the Levant. There's many things we... Uh, barely touched on that we could we could develop further so thanks for coming on yeah and thank you we look forward to further discussions down the line yeah thanks again uh appreciate it you've been listening to on scripts biblical world podcast if you enjoy the show please show your support by giving us a rating on itunes or wherever you listen you can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate until next time keep digging <laughs>